there are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The BMW i4 M50. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Experience the power of over 500 horses stampeding at a whisper as BMW M-engineered handling takes you through every twist and turn. The complete suite of intuitive technology keeps you connected. The pure performance keeps your heart racing. The BMW i4 M50. Silence has never said so much. BMW, the ultimate electric driving machine. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical bill expert, finding savings can seem impossible. Well, HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. So start saving with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another new episode of Her with Amina Brown. And I'm really excited about this episode because uh, y'all have to tell me as the listeners how you feel about uh, Q&A episodes. But I love a good (laughs) Q&A. I love a good Q&A. Even when I used to do um, workshops and stuff like that, or I've done a couple of um, conferences in the past where I had a performance slot. And then during the part where people would go to like breakout sessions or whatever, during that part, I would just have a session where it was just like open Q&A for people. And I'm sure that format probably makes some people feel really, really nervous (laughs) about the idea that people are just going to be throwing questions at you and you don't know what they're going to ask. But I loved that format. So I thought I had not done an Ask Amina Anything episode in a while. And I thought I would do that. So I want to say a big shout out to all of you 
on Instagram and Twitter that submitted your questions. Let's get into it. Nish asked a very important question. Nish asked, you can pick one Beyonce song and one Beyonce song only. You're listening to it for the rest of your life. What song is it? Oh, Nish. Mm. I mean, I'm not going to lie about it. I think it's formation for me. Like, there's just something about the, the soul of that song, you know? You know how there are certain songs that become hits and then over time, they kind of become like oversaturated to you. And then you have to go like a long period of time without listening to them. Like, I would say of Beyonce's hit, Single Ladies probably falls in that category, right? Um, or Alicia Keys. Alicia Keys has quite a few songs that are like that, that they sort of got played so much on the radio and so many commercials and so many things. And then I just get like, oh, I'm so tired. But then years later, when I haven't listened to that song in so long, I go back to it and I'm like, oh my gosh, I love that song. Formation is not like that. (laughs) Formation is not like that. Like, it was obviously being played a whole lot around the time that Lemonade was coming out. And then we were hearing it again when Beyonce uh, released the Netflix film and album for Homecoming. But I have to say... Formation still just the same way I felt the first time I was watching that music video before Beyonce performed at the Super Bowl. I still feel the same way about that song. It's just this, it's this like, uh, it's this call out there to Black women. And there's so many things about the way the song was written. Big Frida right at the beginning there of that song. And oh, it's so Southern. It's so... It's so New Orleans, Houston, you know, all these things mixed together that I really, really love. And quiet as it's kept, I'm a person who loves to put together a playlist. And I have playlists for all manner of occasions. I feel like I've talked about this in a few episodes. And one of my most recent podcasts, not podcasts, one of my most recent playlists that I created was a Get On Up playlist. Something that I can play in the morning to like get me going. And that type of playlist is great for a song like Formation. I also have a playlist called Womanship. And that song, that song is definitely on my Womanship playlist. Like it's just a playlist of all these songs that make me feel empowered and beautiful, that remind me of my confidence. So yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Formation for me. Thank you, Nish. That was a great question. Katie asked, if you had to eat only one flavor or type of donut for the rest of your life, what would you choose? Ooh, this pick one is really hard for a girl. It's really hard. Okay. Mm. I feel like if I'm telling the truth, truth, my favorite flavor of donut, which Dunkin' Donuts was my original gateway into this donut, is the eclair. Uh, I feel like that would be my top pick probably to eat for the rest of my life. However, a girl gets into her 30s and discovers that she has sensitivities to dairy. (laughs) A girl has to choose her donuts wisely. So probably my second and better for my tummy choice would be any type of a lemon diet, like almost like, like, like a lemon 
donut situation, if I could have like the the spectrum of lemon donuts, because there's the lemon donut where it's sort of like powdered sugar or cinnamon, not cinnamon, but kind of like kind of sugary on the outside. And then it has like the lemon curd inside. And then there's more of like a lemon poppy seed, which is more like your traditional yeast donut, but then it has the lemon frosting or icing glaze on top. So anything lemon is probably better for me to be in that zone for the rest of my life. But if I'm being honest with y'all, it is it's, it is something, if my tummy could handle it, it would be something between an eclair and a Boston cream pie donut. Like it'd be up in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Katie. That's a great question. Sharifa. Sharifa has a few questions and they're all great. So I'm very excited to answer them. Sharifa asked, what are your creative catalysts compelling you to write? That's a really interesting question. Mm, I feel like, I feel like the first term that's coming to my mind, Sharifa, is my ancestors. And I think sometimes we hear that and it can sound really generic. And then depending on what your own uh, spiritual traditions are, it may sound strange to you or, or not. Or if it's something that you're very, very familiar with, it may sound like home to you. But I do feel like there is something in the, the women in my family that came before me, right? That I do feel there are times that they compel me to write. And I do not know how to really better explain that. But I, I do, I feel that feeling. It's interesting because this week, my husband and I went to Janelle Monet's book tour event here in Atlanta for her book, The Memory Librarian. And it was interesting. You're watching her in conversation with these two amazing Black folks e-viewing. And uh, I don't know the name of the person that was facilitating, but it was glorious, glorious. And one of the questions that the facilitator was asking was wanting to know from Janelle and Eve, who collaborated on one of the stories in The Memory Librarian, which is a sci-fi book. I believe it's a sci-fi book of different short stories, and Janelle is collaborating with other writers and and amazing uh, creatives, right? And the facilitator asked them, if you could, with the consent of this person, if you could get someone else's memories and be able to study them, study their life even more in depth, who would you pick? And I was thinking about my answer to that question. And the first thought that came to my mind was, I would want my great-grandmother, her mother, and her mother, right? Because there are times that when I'm, especially when I'm writing or when I'm about to go on stage, that I sense the presence of my great-grandmother but I sense that there are other women with her and that they know me, but I didn't get a chance to meet them. And that somehow their, their 
strength, their wisdom, their curiosities about life are also present to me. So I do feel that they are a part of this creative catalyst that compels me to write. I think sometimes it's nosiness (laughs) that compels me to write. I'm just curious about other people's business. And so sometimes I can reimagine what their business might be when I'm working on a poem or working on a story or something like that. Um, I think music is a big creative catalyst for me. And especially when I'm getting a chance to hear music live, but I would also say there are just certain albums, certain artists that really get me to thinking and brooding. Brooding is a big part of creative catalysts that compel me to write. Just really thinking about life, thinking about conversations, thinking about our relationships to each other as humans. I'm a person who who loves to brood. I, I like getting to have those types of conversations with people where you're just talking about life, talking about things you wonder about, things you don't have an answer about, things that are a mystery to you, things you're really trying to figure out. Even if you know in your whole life, you can never figure them out. I think all those things are the catalysts that sort of lead me to the page. Uh, Sharifa also asked, do folks still ask you and your husband if you'd like separate checks at restaurants because they ask me? (laughs) And the answer is yes, Sharifa, they do. We do still get that. And for those of you who may be new to the podcast or new to me, I am in an interracial relationship. My husband is white. And uh, Sharifa and I are also friends in real life. So I know that her husband is white as well. And she's a Black woman, like I'm a Black woman. So it is fascinating <laughs> the, the amount of times that people go through a lot of mental gymnastics they're doing to not think that this is your spouse or your partner because you don't, air quotes, look alike, right? Or don't look to them like you should be together. This doesn't happen as much anymore. Um, This example I'm about to give, the restaurant thing totally happens still. But this example I'm about to give doesn't happen as much anymore because I'm just not performing in churches. Um, I haven't been for a while, even um, prior to the pandemic. I was just slowing up on that. And then the pandemic was sort of a great way to be like, well, now that's done. But when I used to perform poetry in churches a lot, And most of my career, I performed in predominantly white churches and predominantly white Christian spaces, right? And it was hilarious to me how many times my husband and I would show up to these churches because he traveled with me a lot and they would assume he was my manager. (laughs) I've even had it happen at a couple of white churches where there was a janitor there or there was some other Black man there in the room that they weren't maybe familiar with. This happened probably more so at a conference, right? Where like they're not in the church space, but maybe they're in a venue and there may be a Black man who's working at the venue. But I remember a very specific time that it was a Black man who was working as a janitor. And my husband and I walk in about to do sound check. And they look at both of us standing next to each other and they point to the random Black man who's just doing his job 
and they'll say, oh, we just saw your husband. <laughs> and I'll be like, oh, I, I, I don't know him. I don't know him. Like, I think he lives in the city here where y'all live. And I travel here with my husband. So, yes, that's always um, an interesting moment, Sharifa. You are, you are not alone in that. Sharifa also asked, how often do you trim your ends? And she said, I'm so bad at this. <laughs> okay, so I need to confess right here that this is a, a, how I approach my hair care is a thing that I feel I was taught implicitly by my mother. So I grew up in the house for most of my time growing up. It was um, for a while, just my mom and I, and then it was my mom, my sister and I. And then right as I was about to leave high school, my grandmother moved in with us. So I've had just a mostly like femme woman experience growing up. Most of my influential figures were women and not just women, but black women, right? So my mom's rules about hair what I learned from her implicitly is my mom was basically like, if your hair needs to be like shampooed, conditioned, styled, my mom was like, I can do that. But if your hair needs cutting, if it needs color, if it needs chemicals, we don't do that at home. I can count on one hand and possibly one or two fingers the amount of time I gave my sister a perm at home. My mom was big on, there are professionals who do this and we're going to let them do this so that your hair doesn't fall out. <laughs> so we don't do anything wrong to it. And I really adopted that practice for the most part. So I still, before I went natural, when I was wearing my hair relaxed, I was really good at like, I can shampoo, I can condition, I could style my hair, I could curl it, I could blow dry it, I could do all those things at home. But if it came to cutting, I was going to a professional because I don't trust myself. Even when the pandemic started, my current hairstylist, who styles only natural hair. My current hairstylist, I asked her to do like a consultation with me since we were locked down and I could not get to her for her to actually style my hair. And it was a wonderful consultation. She talked me through like, you know, what I should be doing in addition to my basic kind of shampoo, deep condition, leave-in conditioner, whatever my routine was. I told her what I'd been doing. There's a few things I'd been doing that she told me not to do anymore. <laughs> and then she told me, like, you need to have some times that you do some deep conditioning. You need to have some times that you do some protein treatments on your hair. Like, she walked me through all these things, many things that she would do when I would see her, but things that would help my hair to, like, remain healthy until I could see her. And then right at the end of the consultation, she was like, oh, you should go and order some shears and you can just dust your ends until I see you. And I knew as soon as she said it that I was not going to do it. <laughs> I just don't have whatever that sort of visual visual gene is. Like, I just, I don't have that. I don't have that. I can't draw. I can't paint. I'm not good at interior design. I am not great at fashion. I, I don't have visual giftings in any way. So I do not trust myself to trim my own ends. So I don't do that. But I go see my hairstylist about every eight to 10 weeks, and I let her trim it. I'm going to tell you, and for anyone listening that is Black and has natural hair, and even for some of you that may not be Black, but you may have like really, really um, tight, curly hair, 
it's really hard when it's time to get a trim. (laughs) But I can say from my experience as a Black woman with natural hair, it is really hard when it's time to trim because every time your hair grows, it feels so like hard won, you know? You feel like you have worked so hard to get that, you know, half inch or that inch of growth that you have. And you don't want to be told by a professional that what you are thinking is your hair growing. Now they have to cut that half inch off of there because it's time for them to trim your ends. So among my Black woman community, I do have many friends who are natural that avoid trims for that reason. They only get their hair trimmed like twice a year because they really don't want to deal with losing the length of their hair that they love. But I have gone through some changes with my hair. I entered being natural with getting my hair colored. My um, initial hairstylist that was with me when I did the big chop and, you know, she's the one who cut off the last little bits of my relaxed hair on the ends. She um, dyed my hair that first time. So for most of my time being natural, I've always been in and out of hair color. And sometimes my hair was healthier doing that than other times, right? So now I'm really about doing everything I can to keep my hair healthy. And I have a hairstylist that's very focused on that. So it's a little more, I think it's easier for me to go in and know that every eight to 10 weeks I'm going to get it trimmed. Then actually I would have to say doing that more often is helping my hair grow. Like I'm, I'm probably have the longest hair that I've ever had, I venture to say, in my entire life <laughs> right now because I am trimming more often. And if you have access to a professional, especially a professional that specializes in natural hair on Black women, like I think that is a good thing. When you have access to that, when you can treat yourself to that, I think you should. But some of you listening that are Black women with natural hair or Black folks with natural hair, like some of you listening are really good at like dusting your own ends and trimming your own ends. And if that's you, if that's you, then yes, I think you should probably try to trim your ends every two to three months. Try that, you know, that really helps your hair to grow. And I do think even if you're very good at caring for your hair, maybe if you're great at doing your color and your cut and everything yourself, I think it's good if you can, to have sometimes that you go into a professional, let them sort of assess how your hair is doing. They can even, while they're, you know, doing your hair appointment, they can give you some consultation on, you know, what you can do for your hair to make your hair healthier even in the process. So shout out to that, Sharifa. I apparently had a lot to say about trimming ends, didn't I? Okay, Sharifa also asked, what is the one carb you cannot do without? Mm. Mm. That's a tough one, girl. I'm like, one carb? And I'm, I'm going to tell you what, I'm, what I mean when I say carb. This is not a scientific definition because I know that technically, like fruit, there are some fruits that are also carbohydrates, right? There are some vegetables that are also carbs. I really technically mean flour-based carbs. I'm not even thinking about rice when I say this. I mean flour-based Carbohydrates that really for me falls in the pasta, cobbler, <laughs> you know, cake, brownies. I mean, a lot of it's sweet stuff, but it could be a shepherd's pie. It could be a pot pie. You know, it could be 
all the different various pasta dishes that we love. Okay, so just so y'all know what I mean when I say a carb. I guess the one carb I could not do without, I feel like it would probably have to be just in general desserts. I th- I think because I, I was trying to think to myself, is it dessert or pasta? And I feel like if something happened and my doctor was like, you are allergic to pasta, you can still eat dessert, but you're allergic to pasta. Or if my doctor said, you're allergic to dessert, but you can still eat pasta. I feel like I would be most disappointed about the desserts. So overall, it's the dessert for me. It's the dessert for me. Like that's that's the carb that I need. I think I could have zucchini noodles <laughs> and just be like, yo, that's going to be my pasta. But that ain't going to replace a good creme brulee. It's going to be hard to replace. You know, like you can't be like here with this banana. I will make a creme brulee. Like that's just not. Mm-mm. That's not going to do. Here with this, you know, carob bean, I will make a chocolate cake. Like, you won't do that. Like, the chocolate cake is delicious. Like, flour is delicious. And I'm not going to stop eating it. So that's my decision. But yes, the one carb category for me would be dessert. Natalie asked, how do you rehearse for your poetry and do you get nervous? Um... I feel like there's two different categories of how I would rehearse. And I think the one category is how I would rehearse poems that I know already and how I would I would rehearse when I'm working on a new poem. When I'm rehearsing poems I know already, a part of it is sort of this, I'm not in any way saying <laughs> that performing poetry is athletics. But I think because I participated um, as an athlete when I was in high school, I think some of the routine of what you are doing to sort of tune your body back into your sport, I think I kept some of that type of routine as it relates to my poems. So some of it for me is about warming up my voice and getting my voice opened up, ready to project A lot of that is about hydration. I can't practice my poems or practice performing them if my throat is dry, if my body overall is really dehydrated. So typically when I would be rehearsing some poems I knew, I would start out just kind of opening up my voice. I would start out maybe performing a poem or two that I knew really well and getting in the rhythm of them, saying them loudly so that I can also get myself back used to projecting. Uh, But I think that also plays a role in sort of opening me up to sort of getting relaxed into what it's going to feel like to be on stage. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. 
beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. You're probably careful with your personal information, but what about the other places that have it? Like the doctor's office that mixed up your files. They have your social security number. The power company that mistakenly cut your service has your payment info and last three addresses. And the hotel that lost your reservation has your passport info. Your information is in endless places out of your control. Any one of them could accidentally expose you to hackers and identity theft through lax security, breaches, or simple mistakes. But LifeLock monitors millions of data points every second and alerts you to a wide range of threats. If your identity is stolen, a U.S.-based restoration specialist will fix it, guaranteed, or your money back with plans covering up to $3 million for stolen funds and expenses. Mistakes happen. Don't let not having protection be one of them. Save up to 40% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 40%. Terms apply. Paid by up-level rewards. Paid participation required. Actor portrayal. Attention all listeners. Are you ready to earn $750? Well, get ready because I'm about to introduce you to GetMy750.com, the ultimate way to earn. Here's the scoop. Instead of just streaming shows or playing games on your phone for nothing, you have the chance to earn additional cash. That's right. From trying out new subscriptions to playing your favorite mobile games, you can get extra cash in your pocket. Simply sign up at GetMy750.com and follow the instructions to start earning immediately. So, what are you waiting for? Turn your favorite apps into real cash with GetMy750.com. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to earn rewards for things you're already doing on your phone. Check out GetMy750.com today. That's right. Get started right now at GetMy750.com. Just go to GetMy750.com or Google Get My 750 Cash. Follow the simple instructions and get your $750. That's GetMy750.com. GetMy750.com. I think that uh, another part of that, especially when I'm not at home, like if I have a gig and I flew out of town to go to the gig and I'm in the hotel or I'm in the green room, like I'm within an hour or two hours from a performance, I do sing to warm up my voice, to ground myself. Um, A lot of times I'll sing a hymn and I typically sing hymns that I learned from my great-grandmother. Like um, I'll sing Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. That's a hymn that my great-grandmother taught me when I was a little girl. And um, I learned the hymn Great is Thy Faithfulness when when I was a kid, but I learned it in church, like singing in the choir. So sometimes I'll take like a, to me, what is in part, it is it is in part a spiritual practice, I think, because whether I am performing poems that are explicitly about God or not, there's something very spiritual to me about performing poetry. And 
now in the way my career is, I'm very rarely performing poems in any sort of a Christian or faith-based type of setting. Um, I'm getting to do a performance and do pieces about my life, about my husband, about my hair and whatever else, you know? So sometimes I might still sing or sometimes I might sing an India Ari song, but I think the singing is about this opening up of the voice, opening up of my soul. It's about grounding me. And I like to sing what I would call like a memory song, like a song that I have really wonderful memories about and something about singing that, like it does the physical work, I think, of helping me rehearse, but it also is doing some soul work for me too. And then a lot of times I will rehearse the poems, say them out loud. I pace a lot. (laughs) And then now the way my poetry sets are, when I first started in my career, I was performing my poems one at a time. Well, now I'm doing sets of poetry. Could be 30 minutes, could be an hour long, right? So I'm practicing the poems, but I also have to think about what is the set of poetry I want to do. So say in an hour, I want to do six poems, and then I'm going to tell stories in between the six poems. Then a lot of times when I'm rehearsing, I'm thinking through like, what's the usual story I tell to get between these two poems? Do I have a new angle I want to take on that or want to try? And then I kind of got to fumble through that and talk through that a little bit um, out loud to myself. And then kind of once I talk it together, I can kind of get it together enough to try it out on stage. So I would say that's one way. And if it's a new poem that I'm memorizing and rehearsing, I typically do that in these 20-minute rotations. I start out by handwriting the piece three times, and then I will uh, take, so when I say 20-minute rotations, I mean like 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off, right? Once I've handwritten it, then uh, when I come back to my 20 minutes on, I'll start kind of reciting the poem from the page and just keep going at it line by line, stanza by stanza, until I think I've got most of it. Pre-pandemic, you know, when all the open mics were around, I would take that poem out to an open mic too. Uh, try to take it out a few times before I bring it to like the stage where I got booked to perform this thing. But sometimes I didn't get to do that. So I also just reserve the right as a poet to say to the audience, hey, I've got this new piece. Is it okay if I try it out in front of y'all? You know, all the performances don't have to be, they don't have to feel so like, super produced. I think the most important part for my performances is that they feel conversational. I say to you all as listeners of this podcast that I always want the podcast to feel like a living room, like our her living room. But I think a living room is in my mind all the time. When I'm performing, I almost want the audience to have like relaxed enough that no matter where we are, they sort of felt like they leaned back into a couch a little bit. And I think there is a certain way I like to bring myself to the stage to make people feel that sense of warmth, feel that sense of belonging. I think that's a big part of it for me. And Natalie asked, do you get nervous? Natalie, I get nervous every time, no matter what the size of the crowd is, no matter who is in the audience or not. If I had to perform that poem in front of two people or 2,000 people, I would still be nervous. But the interesting thing about it is I'll feel nervous like an hour before and right up until... I stand there and start talking. And then once I've started talking, I don't feel nervous anymore. But I feel nervous leading up to it every single time. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's good to feel nervous. I know every artist doesn't. So it's not a bad thing if there are performers who just don't feel nervous. But for me, that's a good thing. That's 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 a good sign to me that 
I'm still like in my, I'm in my humanity, <laughs> you know, I'm in the part of me that is still that kid that never knew anybody was going to pay any money to see me do anything, you know? And so I get nervous, but the nervousness totally fades away once I say whatever that first word is on stage. Then after that, I just feel like I'm, I guess I would say I feel like I'm at home, but I feel like I'm making myself at home in somebody else's home typically, right? If I'm, you know, performing someplace that I was asked to come there, I'm like, it's not technically my home, but they were like, here's, you know, a big old living room, make yourself at home. That's what I feel like I'm doing. Great questions, Natalie. Christina asked, what is your advice for an aspiring youth writer for figuring out a path after high school? Wow, Christina, this is a really great question because I you'll you'll have to share with me and any of you listening that are in high school or are high school age or college age, I you'll have to share with me your thoughts about what you think a writer is at this stage of your life. When I was in high school, I thought a writer was in their 40s. And I thought that I needed to find something to do. (laughs) From 17 till I turned 40, I just needed to find something to do to bide my time. And for some reason, all this good writerly stuff was going to come to me in my 40s. But I mean, in certain ways, that's kind of been true. (laughs) But in other ways, not because that meant in my mind, I thought there was no use for a young writer. I thought there was no use for my thoughts at 17 or 19 or, or 22. I thought that my thoughts weren't going to feel important to anyone until I was grown, grown. And I don't believe that's true. And it proved to not be true in my career because I started my career professionally at 22 years old when I didn't expect that that was going to happen. So what my advice would be for an aspiring young writer, especially figuring out what they want to do after high school, I think there are many options for you after high school. Um, I came from a family where it wasn't really an option about college. It wasn't like, you know, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this, or you could go to college. It was like once I was a little kid, everyone just referred to that as when, you know, when you get to college you'll see this. When you get to college, you'll experience that, you know? So I really just didn't have any other thoughts other than attending college. I don't believe necessarily that college is the path for everyone. I think it can be a good path if that turns out to be right for you. And I'll tell you what the pluses of that can be. As a writer, college can be a fantastic training ground. You're going to get exposed to so many other writers so many other authors that you didn't know about. You know, I graduated from Spelman College. I'm actually celebrating my 20-year college reunion this year. Who can believe it? Who can believe it? And when I think about that, I think about especially having gone to a historically Black and historically woman, all woman um, college, I think about all the writers that I either was exposed to or took a much deeper dive into them. I mean, I got to read Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes, one of my professors, uh, shout out to Dr. Harper, uh, was and is a Langston Hughes scholar. I got to read Frantz Fanon and Chinua Achebe. I got to read Beverly Gosh-Sheftal and Audre Lorde. You know, I mean, I was was reading so many amazing um, writers, you know, So I think one of the pluses to college is that it kind of 
forces you into this spot that you are typically doing more reading than you might have done by yourself because you sort of have this structure of classes and and different things, essays to write and all that. So I think college can be a wonderful experience for a writer. I think also a writer has to live. A writer has to live and experience life and think about the stories in their own family. Think about the stories that they've experienced, you know? So I would say if college is something that's possible for you, I would encourage that. Anything that you have that can bring you more learning, whether that's college, whether that's um, certifications, whether that's trade school, anything like that will do nothing but enhance your writing. And I think the plus now for the generation of folks who are graduating high school is that you have access to so many ways to do the work of your writing. When I was coming out of high school, it was sort of like, if you were a writer, people were just like, okay, so you're going to put out a book. You know, there weren't really blogs that existed that much at that time in the late 90s. There definitely wasn't social media as we know it today. So I would also say to a young writer, think about Think about the ways that you can, air quotes, publish your writing that may not even be traditional publishing. I think there are some places where the the playing field has been leveled, where you don't have to wait for some institution or some publishing entity to come and say, you, you are worth publishing. You actually get to decide that your words are worth sharing. And there are a lot of platforms that, you know, you can do that. And if you are a writer that is interested in performance writing, like spoken word, like playwriting, and and the type of things that are going to lead you to stage or to television or to film, I think it's really important to try to find that sort of communal space where you can share your work, whether that's an open mic that could be a virtual type space where you can share your work with other writers. I think even if you're not a performance-based writer, Having community with other writers in general, and in particular, having community with other young writers. You know, how can you gather together with some other young writers you know? Maybe y'all can start a little writing workshop. You can share work with each other and help each other to become better. Maybe you have a book club where y'all read different books to help you become better writers. You know, any of those things I would say are great places to start with figuring out what your path will be after high school and just accept there may not be this established path for you. You may feel like you're making some of it up. You may feel like you're trying a bunch of things and just seeing what comes out and that's okay. So many people that you look up to, their journey to where you are looking up to them was very rough and tumble. They did not know. They did not have it all figured out and it's okay if you don't know. It's okay if you don't have it figured out but it can be fun and interesting and curious just to see where life takes you, to try out some things, to try some different jobs and get some different relationships and connections to folks whose work you love and admire and let all those places be places that you can learn. So I hope that helped, Christina, and we look forward to being able to read more of your work really soon. Lizzie asked, what piece did you recently do that gave you an overwhelming amount of joy? Um, the first piece that comes to my mind to answer this question, Lizzie, is my poem, Never Tell a Black Girl How to Black Girl. 
I love that poem so much. I actually kind of finished that poem during the pandemic. I had started it and was kind of refining it, but it never really, I never really got the chance to pre-pandemic, like do what I would have done with it, take it out to the open mics and do all that. And I got a chance to do that poem on a television show called Social Society. So big shout out to Social Society on All Black Network. Uh, You can see the clip of that on my Instagram if you haven't checked it out already. But I love that poem. I love that poem because I love the reaction I see in Black women when they hear it. Sometimes it makes them cry. Sometimes it makes them laugh. Sometimes I can look in their eyes and see that I made a reference that they're like, oh, that's me. That's my Black girl stuff, you know? And I love the idea of Black girls and Black women continuing to be released from what people expect us to be, that we get to be just who we are. And there is no singular way or monolithic way to be a Black girl. There are all sorts of ways. And I love that for us. So yeah, uh, that poem gives me a lot of joy every time I perform it. Jay asked, what advice do you have for someone who is scared but interested in spoken word? (laughs) I actually get this question a lot. And I can understand the being scared because spoken word has this additional element. For those of you listening that uh, may be poets, but you're not necessarily interested in performing those poems, right? There's a, there's a nervousness itself in writing, but because spoken word is being written to be done in front of a crowd, that sort of becomes a barrier for some folks that they're just like, I don't know, I, I kind of want to do that, but I'm really, really scared. And so I just want to say, first of all, the being scared is totally understandable. I mean, the thought of taking something you've written that's likely very personal and taking it to this room full of strangers and just reading it out loud, that, that is really scary. And kind of goes back to um, the earlier question that Natalie asked about getting nervous. I think most poets that you love at one time were that scared poet or have had times where they were scared. So I would say if you're interested in spoken word, but you feel afraid, I think one of the beautiful things about spoken word, at least in, in my experience, spoken word is built in community. And I feel it's best built in community. Spoken word is not something that is best done when you are just isolated away from other poets and away from that sense of community. And I think that's a part of how we help each other. You know, you're going to have moments where the poet next to you is like scared out of their boots, you know, but you're there just to egg them on, to heckle them in a positive way. My sister and I, when we used to go to open mics together, we would say we were positive hecklers, you know, when someone we loved would get up there to perform, we would yell wonderful things at them before they started their piece, just to let them know, like, there's a love out here in the room. So any way that you can get involved in the community of other poets, that will help you to start feeling less and less scared. Because then it may not feel like a room of strangers. It may feel like a room of some people that you might actually know or might actually know you. And you won't feel so alone because at any open mic situation, whether it's in person or virtual, there's always somebody there that it's their first time. And we can all remember our first time and we want to give that person all this love, you know? And so you get to give that love and you also get to receive that love. So that would be my advice to start there. And maybe if you live in a place where maybe there aren't open mics, you know, see if there are virtual spaces like that or 
kind of like I was talking about with Christina. Think about, are there other writers that you know? You can also build your own community if you don't have access to one. So Jay, you're going to feel afraid, but it doesn't mean you should not try doing your spoken word. So I'm hoping that some folks get to hear those pieces really soon. TM asked, do you sit down to write and a poem comes out to you and then you write? Okay. I have a smaller number of experiences where I sat down and the whole poem just came to me. Typically, the poems come to me in layers. I get maybe a couple of lines and then I wait several months. (laughs) And then I get a few more lines and then a few weeks go by and then a few more lines, and then I'll have a conversation with someone and the rest of the poem will come. Most of my poems are written in some iteration like that. Every now and then I've had a poem that I just, it's very rare that I have a poem and I have an idea and I sit down to write it and then it just comes to me. It's typically more like all of my poems sort of start as either one-liner kind of things, or I do have sort of a concept or an idea And then I kind of have to come back to that concept later. And then months later or weeks later, the poem will just show up. So that's the interesting thing about poetry. Of all the genres of writing that I've done, I've written as a journalist. I've written as a nonfiction author. You know, um, I've written essays. And poems are different in how they come about they will not be controlled. You will not go to a poem and say, today I will write 500 words. You sort of have to go to the poem and see which poems want to be written. So that's part of why I say that for me, writing poetry is a very spiritual act because it does feel very connected to this mystery, you know, of what some of my friends would call the divine, what some of us would call God, or just some force that's unexplainable and how creativity happens, you know? And I really do believe in that because I <laughs> I sit down to write and I don't always know what in the world is going to come out. And sometimes I sit down to write and nothing comes out. And those are very frustrating days. But that doesn't mean just because nothing came out that I shouldn't keep going back to the work and just go back and try. Sometimes I will have had a poem idea. This has happened to me several times that I've had a poem that I had an idea for like years ago. And I could just never figure out exactly how to get it written. And all those years later, the poem will show up. I'll be about to go to sleep and I'll get all these lines and I'll be like, well, that's interesting, you know, and just try to keep track of it. So, yeah, I very rarely sit down and a poem just comes out. It sort of comes to me like in fragments until I start to see like the picture of the poem becoming whole. And then I'll start refining from there, if that makes sense. Okay, this is our last question for this episode. TM asked, this is a very important question. (laughs) How do you use the bathroom while wearing a jumpsuit? In the podcast, you asked this question, but you didn't answer it. TM, I want to thank you for bringing this up right now. Because this, this is a part of what kept me from wearing jumpsuits for so long. Because I would look at other women wearing them. And I would be like, man, that looks so good on her. Like, I love how that looks on her. Yes, you know? Then I would be like, how does she go to the bathroom? And I'm going to say something, and this is going to be a little Easter egg for those of you that are fans, so I'm going to get you sucker. But I really was like, how to go to the bathroom with all that stuff on? Anyways, this is the deal with jumpsuits and going to the bathroom that I have learned. The best 
jumpsuit to make it easier to go to the bathroom is, for me, a jumpsuit that doesn't have a zipper. Or if it has a zipper, it has to be easy to get in and out of it. But I really recommend jumpsuits that don't have zippers when possible because they are the easiest to go to the bathroom now. It might feel a little weird for you if, you know, you're pulling your jumpsuit down and, you know, for those of us with breasts, it's like you're pulling your jumpsuit down and you're like, am I naked? (laughs) Am I naked in the bathroom? And then sometimes I have some jumpsuits that are baggier. So it becomes an interesting sort of strange bathroom yoga pose that I'm doing to like try to do the squat that one does when you're in a public restroom. But I'm trying to hold my knees in a certain way to keep my jumpsuit from falling down to the ground. (laughs) So your best case scenario when going to the bathroom wearing a jumpsuit is that you're wearing a jumpsuit that doesn't have a zipper so you can really just pull down the straps. Or if it's strapless, that you can pull down whatever the tube top of it is, but that it's snug enough in the middle, in the waist, that it still stays up on you while you like do whatever arrangements you're doing when you go to the bathroom. And then that when it's time to put it back on, it's easy. Where it's a problem when you're trying to go to the bathroom wearing a jumpsuit is when the jumpsuit has a back zipper And it's one of those zippers that either it would be better if you had a second person to zip you up or that you have to get in some sort of strange ego pigeon pose in order to get that zipper up by yourself. I have some jumpsuits like that. I don't wear them as much anymore. But when I was traveling a lot and doing a lot of events, it would literally be that I would have to time how I drank water (laughs) so that I could not have to go to the bathroom that often because I wasn't sure how long it was going to take me to get out of the jumpsuit to go to the bathroom and then to get back in it. Now, sometimes you could just receive the kindness of a stranger in the bathroom if you if you feel up to this and just have to walk out and be like, can somebody help? But I don't like to be in that situation. So I feel like if you're going to do a jumpsuit, jumpsuits can be so wonderful on so many different body types. I feel like every body type can find a jumpsuit that works for your body. You know, I really do feel that way. But I feel like if you in a place where you can try on this jumpsuit, you should try on what it feels like getting out of it and getting into it. And if it's complicated, if the zipper is sticking, if you can get the zipper up so far by yourself, but then you got to bend your head down and try to fold up your arms and do all this strange stuff, like really try to find some jumpsuits that look good on you and that make you feel good when you wear them, but also that you can get in and out of easily. Because let me tell you, it's nothing like the panic of having a bladder that is super full and knowing that you've got a little bit of a journey ahead of you trying to get out of your clothes. No one wants it. No one wants it. Okay. So that's my jumpsuit advice. That is how I use the bathroom (laughs) while wearing a jumpsuit. Thank you, TM, for bringing that back up because I I didn't want to leave y'all out there. I don't want to leave those questions unresolved. I want to thank you all for your wonderful questions. I hope to do one of these again soon in the next couple of months. So I hope you all have a great rest of your week. And this week, I want you to try to do something that I'm trying to give as a gift to myself. Give yourself the gift of a slow morning this week if you can get it. Give yourself the gift of a morning where Maybe you don't have to schedule that meeting right first thing. 
Maybe you give yourself that little bit of time. Maybe it's a Saturday. Maybe it's a Sunday. Maybe it's a day off from work that you have. Maybe you only get one of these days a year based on what your schedule is. But give yourself the gift of a morning that you don't have to meet anyone's expectations but your own. And that's what I wish for all of you. Thanks so much. See y'all next week. Her with Amina Brown is produced by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions as a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartRadio. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at legalshield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And hmm. not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today.